with issue for all women. Hello and welcome to... Oh, hang on. It's still Mickey here, but this week we're doing things a bit differently. We're always wanging on about how gender inequality is an absolute ball bag for everyone, and that everyone very much includes men. Yeah, you heard me. And so ahead of International Men's Day on November the 19th and our man special gig at Leicester Square Theatre on November the 20th, we decided to do a series of interviews where we chatted to blokes about what is going on with the dudes. Between now and Tuesday, you'll hear Hannah talking to Shadow Health Secretary Jonathan Ashworth about growing up the child of an alcoholic. I have a frank and frankly heartbreaking conversation about how language around domestic violence needs to change with Luke Hart. He's a domestic violence campaigner and co-author of Operation Lighthouse, which tells the story of how his mum Claire and sister Charlotte were murdered by his father. Jen catches up with the Rizzle of Rizzle Kicks, a.k.a. Jordan Stevens, about the dangers of toxic masculinity. And she also chats to Dr Jacob Whittingham Vigors, head of programmes at the Fight for Peace London Academy, an organisation which uses boxing and martial arts to help support the development of young people in communities affected by crime and violence. Also, keep an ear out for a fresh outside the box, with Ardon Levy covering all of the news and reviews bases on what to put in your eyeballs right now and what to get excited about in the future. And there'll be a Sunday Chops, in which we talk fiery suffragettes, sexy Victorians and immodest women, with the brilliant Dr Fern Riddell. That comes out on, well, Sunday. But now, we're kicking off our series of man specials with me talking to awesome author and mental health advocate Matt Haig about brain diarrhoea, the many perils of Twitter and how Netflix has got it in for shut eye. Hello, I'm joined on the phone by journalist and best-selling author Matt Haig, the man behind, among other books, Mental Health Bibles, Reasons to Stay Alive, and most recently, Notes on a Nervous Planet. I'm going to put it out there that Matt might well be one of the most human humans in existence. Let's find out. Hey, Matt. Well, I think I'm technically human, but I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if it's. Um, I don't know if I'm necessarily more human than other humans, except that I'm still not up yet and it's 11.07 in the morning so I'm, I'm more writerly than most humans maybe if this is what writers do. You're uber human though because you're so self-aware of the humanness. I overthink things and I think this is a thing w- which comes about with anyone who's had experience of quite serious moments of mental illness or mental ill health is the negative of that obviously is that you sort of go into these thought spirals but there's a sort of like positive to it because you end up sort of knowing yourself at least not necessarily everyone but you know yourself a little bit more than you did before it's like when your car breaks down you suddenly have to become aware of what's making your car break down and I think that when you have a breakdown as I did even though breakdown's not a technical medical term it's how I felt you suddenly have to think right crap okay what's gone on there how do I fix that and so you do a lot of that when you're ill with mental stuff and so I I think it's you know it's not unique to me I think it's people who go through that sort of stuff you become a sort of natural accidental philosopher I suppose because you're just yeah thinking all the time about life I'm guessing you never set out to become an expert on anxiety and depression no, I didn't really set out to become anything, actually. I mean, one of the things about me as a young person is I, I literally had, well, I think it was a lack of confidence, but I had no ambition or no idea. I couldn't envision anything I would be. If someone had said, oh, you're going to end up being a writer, or you're going to end up being a spokesperson, mental health friend, I'd have liked all of those ideas, but I just, you know, couldn't imagine myself doing it. But no, uh, to be honest, I mean, I'd written about 10 books before reasons to stay alive it took me a long time basically before i had 
the confidence to write openly and honestly about what I went through and I was like sort of typical young man thing of just finding it hard to talk about and to admit and accept vulnerability and not being you know 100% and I don't know how it gets in whether it's totally cultural or just something innate in us but I I found it really hard to talk to anyone I was very lucky that I had my partner Andrea who I was in a long relationship with before I became ill so I had someone to talk to and just be my weird self with but beyond that in terms of like friends and uh, you know distant relatives and stuff I, I couldn't I couldn't really talk about it for about a decade so no it definitely wasn't part of the plan and it was Reason to Stay Alive was the only book I've ever been asked to write and it was by a friend who works in publishing in London who also has had depression herself she said oh you should really write about own experience and that's the first thing that got me thinking about it but yeah um, life's strange and it feels natural now but yeah it was never never on the agenda so how does it feel being a man with emotions (laughs) oh i I could do less emotions (laughs) emotions can be overrated i believe men do have emotions i feel that their emotions sometimes well to be honest to be fair on the old men, I think it can be hard to... Like, for me, none of my friends would have actually judged me if I'd have talked about what I was feeling. I don't honestly think they would have. But I had such stigma inside myself. I think, think like, a lot of us, it's not about we're necessarily stigmatising other people, but we stigmatise ourselves. And for ages, just, like, going to a doctor and saying, you know, I've got anxiety, I've got depression, that felt massive to do that and it shouldn't feel massive but it just did and I, I feel like the problem with men is they do have emotions but sometimes when they sit on them and bottle them up it's not good it's not good to suppress anything like that is no. it that, that that's intense and powerful and then it can come out in problematic ways which is why you know you look at addiction figures you look at homelessness figures you look at violence figures toxic masculinity is definitely a real thing but it's not just toxic to women or other people it's you know it's not good for the men themselves because you know you only have to look at suicide rates alcoholism or whatever yeah it's good to be open it's not necessarily great to be overly emotional all the time but if you are feeling overly emotional it's good to have a valve where you can just say what you're feeling and there is still a lot of dangerous pressure on boys and young men to be strong and tough and silent in the face of well, like pain and, and basically any emotion other than anger, which seems to be encouraged. Do you think that's shifting? Yeah, I think it's shifting a little bit. I mean, I think we're getting over the sort of stuff about how, to the extent that even, you know, men can't sort of like go into a shop and buy something like tissues without it being man-sized tissues. Or, <laughs> you know, even chocolate's too feminine, so it has to be sort of man-sized Yorkie chocolate. I think that's kind of, that sort of stuff's changing. I think there's a more acceptance. The problem is, I think, with men, I think men are a little bit behind women in, in, in talking about themselves as a gender because you obviously either get the defensive type of men who just instinctively feel like anyone talking about feminism or toxic masculinity is just an attack yeah. on them. And there's very sort of defensive and toxic sort of stuff which you see on Twitter all the time which just sets everybody back which isn't good and so uh, I feel like men are starting to realise they can be supporters of feminism and stuff but they're not so good at talking about themselves in a constructive 
positive for everybody kind of way. And we're definitely behind women, I think, in doing that. And I think that's just symptomatic of our problem generally we have in talking about our, you know, we definitely like talking about ourselves, but in terms of talking <laughs> about our vulnerability, we might mansplain to infinity, but we don't actually talk very often about our own insecurities and failings and problems and we don't know how to do it without feeling overwhelming guilt or crossness and I think we're sort of bad at handling that but um, I think it's starting to change I think in recent years you know there's been a, quite a few celebrities male celebrities talking about it you've had Robert Webb you've had Grayson Perry I've done it a little bit here and there and there's been other people obviously but I still think we've a, a, a long way behind. And what do you think that we as members of the same society can do to help? I think the mental health thing is is a big thing. So I think the fact that we're getting more comfortable about talking about emotions, because it's not just men who found that difficult. I think, you know, you, you go back 10, 20 years, I think women felt the same sort of stigma around things like depression and anxiety and stuff as, as men still do sometimes. And some women still do as well. You know, there's no blanket rule for everything i think it's just about listening and being understanding and contextualizing people and obviously social media is bad at that sometimes because people can be very um snappy with each other and see only one side of an argument and i think that's unhelpful but the helpful thing about it possibly is it has encouraged more people to talk about their own things they can even do it anonymously and internet anonymity isn't always good but i think one of the good sides of it is it you know if you've got no one to talk to if you can't talk to your family or your employer or your friends about something then you you can find like-minded people i mean going back 20 years when i i had my full-blown breakdown in 1999 and 2000 the thing that sort of made me feel worse all the time is that i had nobody to talk to who'd gone through it i had uh, people to talk to in terms of parents and my partner but in terms of people who'd gone through it i didn't know anyone who'd been through hard stuff so for me the famous people I knew who'd had depression were people like Sylvia Plath and Kurt Cobain. I just thought, you, you only heard about the suicides. Yeah, they didn't end but, well. No, they didn't end well. <laughs> and and so I, I felt like, oh, that's what happens. You know, inevitably there'll be some point at which I can't take it anymore and the end will happen. And obviously that's not most people's experience of mental illness. But when you're in a very melodramatic frame of mind, which depression can give you, and when you're sort of young and you haven't seen many examples of it, it can be quite dangerous, you know, the template that's sort of out there. And I think now we've got different templates. I think both genders and, have, you know, I think men, women, everybody has more examples of people going through stuff than we ever did before. And although there's all kinds of reasons to be sort of doom and gloom about mental health and technology, there are some good things out there. I mean, the suicide rates are slowly going down. There are other problems that need addressing, but at least we're becoming more alert to it. This leads very neatly onto Notes on a Nervous Planet, which I'm very excited to chat to you about because it is brilliant. And my copy is covered in little post-it notes on the observations and just the warmth in it and tips on how to survive surviving that I, I go back to. So first up, thanks very much. And secondly, could you explain the concept behind the writing of it for our listeners? Yeah, well, after Reasons to Stay Alive, I didn't want to write 
a sequel for a while. I, I had nothing else to say. I sort of put it all in Reason Stay Alive. And so I went away for about three years. I wrote other stuff. I wrote a kid's book about Father Christmas. I wrote different things. I wrote a novel called How to Stop Time. And I, I thought, you know, done and dusted. I won't go back to it unless I had something to say. But what I noticed during those three years is about how, when I was still having mental health dips, how much of them were related to things I was doing and things I was feeling, obviously. And a lot of those things I was doing and feeling were related to modern life. One thing that's always helped me over the years is understanding that there are things that I do that make me feel worse, things that I can do that make me feel better. And if it, we're like that with physical health too. Whatever we've got, whatever our genetic disposition is to something, it's useful and comforting to know there are certain things, not everything, but certain things within our control to a degree. Because that powerlessness with mental illness is so dangerous. So I thought if, if I wrote a book and researched a book that would primarily help me in terms of understanding you know, why I was feeling so bad after spending like five hours on Twitter or Instagram or you know, spending too long in the house or... Uh, staying up too late watching Netflix or whatever it was. There's so many aspects of modern life that sort of work against our mental health in sort of subtle ways. I thought it hasn't really been done and it certainly wasn't something I had addressed in Reasons to Stay Alive about the context of illness. So I eventually found a reason to write another mental health book and, and that was Notes on a Nervous Planet. We touched on it earlier and it is a question that you asked novelist Sadie Smith. Do you worry about what social media is doing to society, not necessarily individuals, but to society as a whole? Yeah, I think so. I think at whatever level you look at it, whatever problem humanity is facing now, whether it's climate change, whether it's Donald Trump, whether it's um, the divisions over Brexit, whatever thing is going on in the world, I think there's a technological component to all of it. Obviously, that's something like climate change, that's all to do with human technology and mm-hmm. how we're sort of destroying the planet. But, you know, politics, I think you look at someone like the rise of Donald Trump, he, he's been helped by all the sort of divisiveness of Twitter, of the rise of fake news, of the 24-hour news cycle, which kind of needs something sensational every hour, which he, he willingly provides them with. Um, I think, you know, a, a lot of our problems and, you know, progress is also to do with technology, but problems are also to do with technology and uh, you know if you go back through the whole development of human history from from the last 30,000 years all the key changes whether it's agricultural revolution industrial revolution or whatever have been sort of technological and I think now we're starting to realize that has a psychological aspect to it it affects our minds I mean just simple things we don't sleep quite in the same way as we did say even like 50 years ago we sleep an hour less than we did 50 years ago you've got people like the head of Netflix who says that Netflix's main competitor isn't Amazon or another streaming service or a TV channel. Netflix's main competitor is sleep. Oh, my God. They, you know, that's how they can increase their revenue. You've got um, people who make beauty creams or anti-aging creams trying to get us to worry about the lines on our face. And this is starting to happen even, even to men now. Obviously, those pressures have been more heavily on women. But, you know, in terms of consumerism they've got to expand the market so you've got even men now worrying about you know lines on the face and which parts of the body to wax or shave the whole economy is almost run on trying to make people worried about stuff the classic thing about beach bodies you say you'll have a magazine talking about beach bodies and putting circles around someone's cellulite and that same magazine will be selling beauty creams on the next page so there's a sort of like 
yep. circle of anxiety and consumerism which we're all tapped into you know whether we feel left behind because we haven't got the latest iphone whatever it is we're encouraged to always feel like we lack stuff and uh, that is not good psychologically so i feel in my sort of sentimental way if we treated each other or ourselves a little bit you know no one looks at a newborn baby and thinks oh look at all that they're lacking you know, you look at a newborn baby as a complete thing and you think they're deserving of 100% love and happiness. And yet something happens as we become sort of older into teenage and then adult humans where we suddenly feel a lack of everything. Yeah, it's a pity we can't hold on to that. But there's a lot of forces working against it. A lot of them are sort of 21st century stuff. It's a fear, isn't it? And it all ties into either a fear of missing out or like that panic you get watching the news because it's heightening terror. And you go into this about how because it's 24 hour news and they've got to have something new every hour, they're basically just upping the horror factor. And we're seeing things that we wouldn't have seen and then collectively getting more horrified by it, which then makes us all more panicky. And we're sort of buying into this circle of terror. Yes, and obviously there's good stuff happening in in the world. You know, child mortality rates going down, third world countries becoming second world countries, becoming first world countries. You know, um, you know, uh, education rates rising amongst women in places where they've always been shut out amongst education. There's, there's progress happening, but given our nature of our brains, with you know, shock and fear is such a powerful force and it was an essential force to keep us alive i mean our brains are perfectly wired for like life thirty thousand years ago that's the last point at which we fundamentally evolved we haven't massively changed much in that time apart from a bit of skin pigmentation stuff you know we're essentially the same people and if you go back thirty thousand years ago the clever evolutionary psychologist people they tell us that we'd have only ever probably encountered about 150 people in our lifetime back then you can go to london and walk out of oxford circus tube station and you've passed 150 people just walking up the stairs you can pass 150 people before you get out of bed on instagram now so we're overloaded in in all kinds of ways not just in terms of other people but think of any category even a good category like books there are so many hundreds of thousands of books coming out every week and we always feel like we're missing out on a book we should be reading or a tv show we should be watching or a film we should we've got too much everything even the good stuff so we sort of get paralyzed by it all there was a, a quite, I think, I can't remember which mega company it was, someone like Unilever. They did this um, test in a supermarket because we're trying to work out how to sell things better. And they actually worked out that too much choice actually stops people doing something because I think it was shampoos. They had like 17 different brands of their sort of L'Oreal shampoos or whatever in one display. And then they had another display which just had three different types of shampoo. And more people bought the shampoo when there was only a choice of three than when there was a choice of 17. And I feel like almost in everything, you know, even the fact that we're sort of overloaded with news, it almost stops us stops us doing stuff. I've got this American um, Facebook friend who I mentioned in Notes on the Nerves Planet, a, a woman called Deborah Morse, and she's old enough to remember the 1970s in America quite well. And she says, back then, no one got their news more than twice a day. You, you had your sort of uh, morning newspaper and then your six o'clock news roundup at, at most. And social change still happens. They got rid of Nixon. There's a peace movement rising and all this sort of stuff happening. And, you know, we're in this age of constant information, but we, we've still got Donald Trump. We've still got the bad stuff happening. So how useful is it to be constantly drip-fed stuff 
I'm know, so glad you mentioned that quote. It's one of my favourites. It's really good and so true because it feels like the world does reflect mental health. Certainly the experiences with mental illness I've had personally, I can yeah. see that this constant sifting of all these voices and trying to work out which ones to trust and which ones are giving you good information that are, are, are good for us or positive. And yeah. then they're just filled with all the shit that comes through as well. And that's how my brain gets. And we've got such a mix of information. I mean, think about food now. Think about diet. Is milk good for us? Is, you know, uh, is wholemeal bread good for us? I have no idea anymore. You know, we've got so many contradictory things. It's like the centre's not holding. Like, like, I live in Brighton where, admittedly, you've got a lot of people eating quite eccentric diets. Um, <laughs> but among... <laughs> <laughs> you know, pretty much every children's party we go to is vegan and gluten-free, everything. But, Matt, Matt, but what know, are the health benefits of turmeric? <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, to be honest, I'm quite... When I go to um, Pret-a-Manger, I, do, I, I always have the turmeric shot, but then I'm worried now I'm having the turmeric, and it, it's not soluble um, unless it's with fat. So I think maybe the turmeric shot when the turmeric's in orange... You know, I've got too much information in my brain, <laughs> even about even about turmeric. It gets to a point where you get so swamped by this dietary information, you think, oh, you know what, I'm just going to go and have a burger because I, I just don't know what to do with that. If, 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 if this, everything I ate as a child thinking it was healthy or my parents thought it was healthy is now unhealthy, then in another 20 years, you know, they're probably going to discover that kale is absolutely killing us all. And then, we, you know, so you get a bit lost. Yeah, absolutely. I was a little bit worried, I'm going to put my hands up, that this interview might turn into a therapy session. As in, I was worried for you, not for me. I, I find it very helpful. Because dipping back into the social media thing again, yeah. yesterday I posted a little tweet that just said, oh, anxiety is kicking my arse at the moment. And it was a link to an interview or a set of interviews that the brilliant Lucy Nicholl had done for Standard Issue. And so oh, I was yeah. sort of flagging up how useful I'd found it. Not that it made the anxiety go away, but that reassuring sense of not feeling on my own. And that we're not on our own anymore because there's always a group of people you can find that are sort of your tribe or understand what you're going through. Unlike when I first suffered from depression, I had people who loved me, but they didn't get it and they couldn't understand it because thankfully they'd not been through it. But then from yeah. that tweet, I also got people going, I hope you feel better soon. And yeah, mine's being a dick at the moment. That kind of solidarity yeah. that we can find on the Internet. Yeah, it's a mixed bag, and I still haven't worked it out. I haven't worked out whether the pros outweigh the cons for me personally. I definitely feel comforted when I'm talking to other people who are very positive and re reflecting your own experience back. Then you do get a few of the sort of man-up brigade. Oh, God, yeah. People survive, you know, irrelevant things, you know, like people survive World War Two, or you have stigma even from people who see themselves as progressive sometimes, like... Uh, mental health stuff you know they, they say oh why, why are you moaning on about depression when people are being shot by police in america it's like you can actually worry about two different things at the same time it's not like a you you have to only worry about one thing if someone is going through cancer it doesn't make famine in africa any better or worse you know it's like people don't seem to understand that uh, with mental health that it is a real thing and it's not someone just having a wine uh, that they don't need to be having often it's taking the massive courage to actually even say what they're going through and there's far more people still i mean there's this general idea as perpetuated by people like piers morgan and stuff that people oh, are God. talking too too much 
talking too much about mental health. He did a, he did a tweet recently, which was totally on brand for him, but you know, just annoying, about how we should stop talking about mental health and start talking about mental strength. And I thought, what a ridiculous thing to say. You would not say we've got to stop talking about physical health. And so, you know, that wouldn't make anyone physically better by stopping and talking we all have mental health mental health isn't it might be something that we haven't always talked about but we've all we all have mental health we might not all be mentally ill but we all have mental health and actually paying a bit more attention to mental health and how society affects it especially at a young age because when you think of most lifelong mental health conditions originate in people who are under 14 years of age i think we need to be doing more of that because at the moment you know we've got a school system and we've got social media and stuff which is sending kids in the other direction so maybe we need to not have massively stressful tests for nine-year-olds every two weeks. Maybe we need to rethink education systems and stuff. So we need to think more about mental health. But yeah, there's a lot of ignorance still around and quite popular ignorance as well. Well, I suppose if you shout in that way, then you don't have to think about anything that might be wrong in your own head. Well, that's it. Exactly. Except I'm someone who knows the price of that because I was someone who, like when I was younger, uh, I used to think, oh, I'm okay, you know, I just go out and uh, escape myself and drink too much and take drugs. And um, that was me as a young man, a typical young man in the 90s. And I would have said the week before my breakdown, I would have been, in, I'd have denied to anybody that I was in any kind of bad place. I'd have said, oh, I'm a fun-loving person. Look, I'm out at two in the morning, I'm drinking. I was in total denial of what I was feeling. And that's why, you know, it was no gradual thing with me. I, it, I just hit a total brick wall. I had a, like a, a panic attack that just didn't end from out of nowhere at 11 in the morning. And that was on a relatively healthy day. I'd been for a run that morning, hadn't smoked, hadn't drank anything because so many things have been building up that I've been ignoring. It was like a big, massive boil that suddenly burst, and it was just like I, I couldn't ignore it anymore. I think that's the danger. I, th I think it's an understandable thing to not face something uncomfortable. But if you don't face that uncomfortable thing, it has the potential to grow and do something destructive or you know, lead to addiction or whatever. So I think that's one of the big problems, and it's a particularly male problem. Not exclusively male, but it does seem to be m more men who, who find that hard to talk about. Yeah. You did a tweet this morning that made me spit my coffee out laughing, and it said, business idea, Twitter, but where people see two sides of the argument. <laughs> it will never take off. We can, dream, but, uh, we can all dream. <laughs> we can all uh, dream. We can dream big, yes. There was lots of dragons, then gifts coming back, you know, with people <laughs> saying, I'm out. But, um, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it just seems, I don't know, I, I, I found it exasperating. And it's not just the fact that we don't see two sides of an argument, it's also the fact that you, you become judged and written off for one statement, often a statement that's misread or misinterpreted, mm -hmm. taken totally out of context. I mean, I've got into trouble before with mental health stuff even. You know, it's just something I, I, I've known well. And I, I, I have said the odd stupid thing. Like I can remember, And it's often, ironically, while I'm in a state of anxiety and depression, so I'm not my best self. And that's the point at which you then get piled on by people who think they're doing a good thing by, for mental health by actually making someone else's mental health worse. Years before Kanye West said such things, I once did a tweet, and I mentioned it in Notes on the Next Planet, saying, anxiety is my superpower. When I'd said that, it was very clear, and it was in a thread of things where I was saying I was in a bad place, it's not good, da, da, da. I wasn't saying anxiety is a good thing. Anxiety nearly cost my life. Anxiety made me suicidal. But what I meant in that tweet without context was there's a point 
when you're recovering where you suddenly seem sort of like overly alert to everything. And that's not a wholly positive thing, but it makes you feel like you've got this sort of weird superpower where you're highly in tune with things. But obviously, I shouldn't have tweeted it, and it was just something that was taken totally out of context and made me feel even worse for about another week. I sometimes think we we should slightly... I mean, even the stuff... And I'm not defending him at all, but even like with Kanye West recently, he's flitting back and forth. We don't necessarily know what's going on in that mind. And I feel like, you know, we're in this age now where people have a public platform and they might not be in their best selves. Sometimes these horrible opinions might also be symptoms you know and they it's a very difficult one and there's no easy solution because obviously we can't let just toxic ideas into the ether without them being challenged but then there's individuals who might you know I, so i don't i genuinely and i don't think anyone's cracked it i don't know what the answer to that is but i i do feel that rather than seeing the worst in people we should still have that old sort of thing that my grandmother used to say and lots of grandmothers used to say you know we should try and see the best in people we should try and be kind if we can be kind as it seems a lot easier sometimes to do the opposite it's nice to be nice isn't it it's nice to be nice is basically and i think it's... even with the twitter the toxicity of arguments is incredible people go from zero to everything's on fire in a tweet like genuinely yeah. in a tweet the whole nonsense recently of they're going to get rid of the like button because it'll inspire better debate and i'm like really seriously yeah no 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 i don't think that's yeah and yeah but all sorts of toxic people are still allowed to be you know you've got literal heads of the ku klux klan who are still on there so it, it, it's a it's a medium that kind of thrives on the vision which is probably why it's the american president's favorite medium but um Oh, yeah, it is It is also very addictive. And it, it, it's a medium made of words, so you get a lot of writers on there who like it. And it's a way, you know, it publishers like you to be on it if you're a writer. So you feel that pressure to be on it. It's definitely helped my career in terms of, like, book sales and stuff and getting people aware of my work. Yeah. So there's that aspect. But in terms of mental health, yeah, I, I'd say on balance, it's probably had more minuses and pluses in my own head. And seeing you, you are, you're playful, you're, you're definitely a character on Twitter, I think you're great on Twitter, you're really fun to follow and you're also very compassionate, but it did make me think, how good are you at taking your own excellent advice? Yeah, I'm really bad at that. I'm a hypocrite. <laughs> I mean, the whole thing with Notes on the Nervous Planet is like, actually, while I was writing Notes on the Nervous Planet, I was really taking the advice on board that was in my book. And then, as always, when a book comes out, you sort of go into promotion mode, you go into drawing attention to yourself mode. Social media is a big part of that. And and so I was getting addicted again while promoting a book (laughs) about how we we shouldn't be addicted to social media. To be my own defender, hopefully, I think what people like about my self-help books is I'm not coming from the higher ground. I'm like reporting from the storm from inside the storm. So I'm not, you know, like my book on depression wasn't from someone who has totally cured of depression you know i'm someone who still has dips my book on sort of 21st century life is some a a book about someone's experiences of using it in toxic ways sometimes and getting too addicted and too wrapped up in it and you know trying absolutely trying and sometimes succeeding um to to be more mindful and aware but not all the time that's why i resist the idea of them being self-help books even though they're often categorized as such because I feel like self-help people, they got to be or at least act like they're in the perfect place. And I'm definitely not in the perfect place, but I've got lots of questions while I'm sort of stuck in the middle place. 
But I think that makes it so much more relatable because they're sort of toolkits. And I always say, having been up and down and been on and off antidepressants and suffering depression since yeah. I was about 19, probably younger, but without it being diagnosed, I have I have a really good toolkit a really good toolkit of knowing what makes me feel that way, what I can do to stop feeling that way, or at least put it, dampen it down a little bit. Yeah. But when I am in the midst of it, I cannot access that toolkit because it doesn't respect logic. It doesn't allow no. me to get to the things I need that I know would help me. Yeah, and all that rationalisation that you can do when you're well or recovering is very hard to do when you're in the middle. Like, yeah. for me, my depression... Every time it tries to find some some reason why this depression is different. Yes. So even if I've had 20 dips of anxiety or depression, my 21st dip will say, ah, this time, this time it's different. This time you probably won't get out of it. But, you know, this, and that, then you'll find one example of someone who, uh, you know, one negative case study about someone who, who got depression later, like in their 40s and it was worse than their 20s and they couldn't take it anymore or something. And that will stay with you and it will grow. But I still believe that you can, it's possible to build up that slight muscle, that slight little inner therapist um, that, that can just sort of saying, even those thoughts are familiar. Even that, you know, hyperbole your mind gets into of exaggerating everything and thinking the worst of everything, even that is a familiar pattern. And, uh, you know, that's why I'm a, a big fan of some of the sort of truer cliches and the, the biggest cliche in the world about time healing. Because time kind of, well, in my case, not, not with everybody, but in my case, time disproved a lot of the things my depression was telling me. My depression was telling me I'd be dead at 25. My depression was telling me every relationship I ever had would fizzle out. Mm-hmm. My depression was telling me I'd never get a job. I'd never earn any money. I'd just get in worse situations, everything. It gave me the, the most dystopian view of my life possible. And then what happens is you hold on long enough and you make it to 25. And some of those worst-case scenarios don't happen. Some of them do happen because life is a mixed bag and you have crap and you have good stuff. But that of the worldview of depression, which tells you literally everything bad is going to happen, that doesn't happen. And time disproves it. And slowly your brain kind of there's at least a part of your brain which understands that in my case and says you you can start to talk yourself out of say a panic attack or something because you can say hold on we've been to the corner shop a thousand times you're not going to die of this panic attack you know it's going to be uncomfortable in the same way I don't know diarrhea is uncomfortable or the same way asthma is uncomfortable but you're not going to spontaneously combust I think looking at mental illness as brain diarrhea is actually a very good <laughs> analogy <laughs> yeah <laughs> i like that it's a bit of a constant <laughs> and actually like I, I, when i i have my anxiety i i talk about mind cramps i think you know that cramping feeling getting in your stomach yeah but i feel like you, you get these thoughts that just become slightly too painful but if you if i find that often the mental stuff if you have a physical analogy it somehow makes it a bit more handleable and you feel a little bit less mad because my, my mind goes into, in very severe anxiety, it goes into some mind cramps where the thoughts become too painful. But as with actual crap, by the nature of cramps, they, they don't last forever. You know, they might last a few hours, but they don't last forever. That sort of stuff 
kind of helps. And, and that whole knocking down the wall between mental and physical, I'm, I, I'm quite into because I don't even understand what mental health is as a separate thing because our brains are physical. You know, we're physical, aren't we? So I feel like a lot of that stuff is a bit unhelpful as well. Absolutely. It's not like you can just go, oh, you know, my body's tired. I'll send my brain to the shop. It doesn't work that way. Yeah. You have, exactly. we're all, we're, it's all one. It's all just one big thing. Exactly. That's good. Just before I let you go, let's talk about a time of year that no one ever finds stressful, and that is Christmas. Oh, um, yeah. Because <laughs> you've got yeah. another sort of Christmas kids book coming out, right? Or it's out. The Truth Pixie is it's out. It's out. The Truth Pixie. Yeah. And this is like, um, this has been out of my recent books. This is the thing that's made me happiest because I wrote this. I didn't even know if I was writing a book. Basically, I was in an anxiety patch last year, last um, Boxing Day, I started writing it. And I was just writing a poem to my kids cheer my kids up and to inadvertently cheer myself up in the process um, about a character I'd written in a, a, other books uh, called The Truth Pixie. It's just a pixie who can't stop telling the truth. And I thought, you know, what? she's basically like a, a magical therapist. She's, she's harsh good though, things. mate. She's harsh. She's harsh. She's totally harsh and she gets into lots of trouble and she's she's quite sad herself because if someone asks her how she's doing she'll tell them how she's doing if someone asks them about their hair she asks them but in the course of this poem which is now a book the truth pixie she also discovers that there's a way to tell the truth that can actually be helpful you don't have to just always insult people with the truth and she finds this uh, in the last third of the book she finds this human girl and she helps this human girl and yeah it was it's done really well but the surprising thing is that it's not just kids reading it adults are reading it adults are sort of reading it as a <laughs> as a sort of very easy and rhyming self-help book which i i really like the idea that um, grown-ups are buying it even if I've got no kids at all. So, um, yeah, but it was a nice surprise because publishers didn't pay much money for it. It was just this little side project. But now it's taking off quite nicely in a natural way, a bit like how Reasons to Stay Alive did, where, where it wasn't totally planned, but it, it just became a word-of-mouth thing. So it's lovely when it happens like that. It's I like the ogre though. who won't eat her because he knows that the truth doesn't always taste good. <laughs> yeah, the truth doesn't taste good. And you've teamed up with the brilliant Chris Mould again. His Chris Mould, Yorkshire lad, yes. I know I Chris, he's seen. an absolute star. He's a wonderful... Oh, you know him? Yeah, he's a wonderful man. And the, his, yeah, his illustrations are just beautiful. I've got quite a few of his books, actually. Yes, and I think, actually, in this one, because I've worked with Chris on three other books, whereas the other books are sort of novels with illustrations. This one is such a sort of illustration-heavy book. Every page has a brilliant illustration. And, and a lot of it, you know, it's pure art, what he's done with um, certainly the stuff of The Human Girl. It's really beautiful um, the way he, 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 he's done that. But, yeah, no, he's a great guy. He, he did an event with my mum. Uh, my oh. mum uh, has, en has entered the field of l book festivals and my hometown of Newark-on-Trent in Nottinghamshire has a book festival and he, he was interviewed, bless him, by my mum. So he's gone the extra <laughs> mile for us and our books because I, I, my mum asked me if I'd do it and I said, no way, mum, I'm not doing that. <laughs> not a chance i'm going to be interviewed by you blah, 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 blah. but yeah chris was game so yeah he he goes beyond and um yeah he's a lovely guy as well which always helps and all of your books are available from all good bookshops yeah yes all good bookshops definitely internet and offline bookshops it should be out yes matt thank you so so much for talking to me i could chat to you all day it's been amazing thank you oh you too i love that thank you very much Hello, Mickey here, interrupting, but you know, with some very important information. We have added a new guest to our November the 20th International Men's Day gig, and I mean, we're proper excited. 
So we have got the boss, Sarah Millican. We have got Richard Herring. We have got David Morrissey. We've got Colin Jackson. And now, add it, Mr. David Mitchell. It's going to be crack. Oh, hello. <laughs> Anna's popped in to interrupt my interrupting. Lovely stuff. It's very meta here at Standard Issue. You can get tickets from Sarah's website www.sarahmillican.co.uk forward slash standard hyphen issue and come see us and these splendid chaps on November the 20th at Leicester Square Theatre. Standard Issue for all women.